Hello and welcome to the Jazz Jam Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Gunnels, joined by my co-host, Max Levy. And on this week's episode, we're going to be getting into a landmark recording in the history of jazz. We're going to be getting into Jazz at Massey Hall, which is a recording done by the Quintet, which is unique because it's the only time that this group got together and it's some of the founding fathers of the bebop movement and some of the greatest players in the bebop movement and in jazz music so really excited to get into this one this week um but yeah so before we get into the album itself we're gonna do kind of instead of our jazz question of the week we're gonna do another fun game Uh, max is really really looking forward to this one um what the game yeah this is is, uh (laughs) this is another moment where i may you know not look so great, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think you got it. every time Max says, "Oh, I'm not gonna know anything," he gets like nine out of ten on like the hardest quiz I've ever seen. So, I think Max <laughs> has got it. So, but what we're gonna do is we are going to I'm going to play like the first three or four seconds of like some like well known or maybe not so well known jazz recordings, and we're gonna see if Max can guess the recording and maybe the artist of um the recording based on just the first couple of seconds of the track. You're throwing me to the fire here. Yeah, so we'll see what Max is, is made of. But before we get into that, I just want to um, give a quick shout-out, a quick plug to our website. Um, and the website is linked in the description of this podcast, so go and click on that. And check out our website. Check out our Instagram that's linked there as well, um, the Jazz Jam Podcast. Feel free to shoot us an email. We'd love to hear from you, um, any thoughts that you have, suggestions, anything that you want to say to us. We, we just love hearing from listeners. So, yeah, please feel free to reach out and go look through our website because it's an awesome resource and there's so much cool stuff on there. And you can check out, you can just see our recaps of every single album if, if you want to do that. Um, so definitely go there and, and check that out. We'd love uh, to hear your feedback on all that. But cool, Max, are you ready to, to get into the game for today? Let's hit it. Let's see what happens. All right, here we go. All right, the first track. I'm going to give you just a couple seconds. This one's going to be, I think you got this one. That is in a sentimental mood from Duke and John Coltrane. Yep, good, good, good. I hit you with a pretty pretty easy one first. Thank you. um, I really do appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I I couldn't (laughs) hit you with, like, just a random one. All right, here's another one. You ready? Hit it. Never will I marry Nancy oh. Wilson with Cannonball Adderley. Nice, that was good. You had to get that one because we did that one on the podcast. We did, and that's you know one of the top um, tracks on that album. And yeah, it's, I, I love Nancy Wilson, so I've listened to that. That's a distinct times. intro too. I was wondering if you were going to get it solely based on the intro, but I, I I knew you could do it. Oh, here we go. Here's another one. That's all you get. Uh oh. Uh, shoot. Can you do that again? Yeah, I'm not giving you any more than that because it'll di- give it away. I'll give you the first oh. note. If I if you get oh, the next note, uh, the interval, it's gonna be get, it's gonna be too obvious. Sunny side of the street. Yeah, let's go. From Max, uh, from, uh, <laughs> from sunny side up. Yes. All right. I'm gonna yeah. play just for all the listeners. I'll play what the next note is to see how much of a dead giveaway it would have been because that interval would have been what you needed to know. It was sunny side of the street. Yeah. 
Yep. That little the pickup there would have been you would have. Yeah, yeah, that was a dead giveaway. But I, you know, I towards the end of that long held note, I was remembering, oh, yeah, that's how they start. You know, because the great thing about that album is the introductions and the arrangement. Yeah. And that's a key factor of that version of Sunny Side of the Street. So it clicked in me as you were doing it the second time. I could have let it go a little longer, but I like forgot exactly how long they hold the note out. And I didn't want to get to that, like pickup to give it, you know, give it away to you. That was a good one. All right. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I'm, Oh, here we go. Let's see if you got this one. Um, I'll let this go for a minute. Well, I, I don't know it off the top of my head. Kind of sounds like Bill Evans. I don't or... know if on a uh, piano on this. I'm not sure on that one. It's Herbie. That's cool. Is that Herbie? It is Herbie. Does that help? Okay. Probably not. Um, I wouldn't get this one, but I didn't know if you would. Well, yeah, uh, just that introduction itself... Uh, I'm not as familiar with. All right, I'll give you. I'll let it go till you get it, and we'll see how long it takes you to get it. Ready? I mean, is it? Um... Do you know who it is on sax? Ooh. Wayne Shorter. Yeah. Okay. There yeah. you go. It's Wayne Shorter. Uh, and I do recognize the, t- the tune. I just cannot think of the name of it. Infant Eyes is the name Infant of it. Infant Eyes. That's it. That Infant was definitely Eyes. the hardest one thus far. And just to do it based on the, the piano intro was going to be tough. Well, and that's a well-known tune associated with those those cats. Uh, especially, it's, I think it's a Wayne, Sh- Wayne Shorter composition. Yeah, yeah. I believe so. Yeah. So, um yeah, that's just me that I need to listen to more Wayne Shorter. <laughs> Wayne Shorter is great. Yeah, but all right. Yeah. Well, you're you're doing well. All right, let's let's do this one. Well, that's the tune "Straight No Chaser." Yep. And so that's Monk. Yep. There you go. Nice. And I played that tune last night, actually. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Oh, here's another one. You should get this one pretty quickly, I think. There's an intro. Hmm. Mm, I might stump him again. This is a stumper. Um. I don't. Modern jazz quartet. Mm. Uh. I heard vibes. Yeah, it's from a very, it's from this player's like most prolific album, and the player is a guitar player. That's all I'm giving you. I can play those ten seconds again if you'd like. <laughs> I don't know if that'll if that would help. Um, guitar player. We've done them on the podcast. We have? Oh, shoot. I'll keep giving you hints until you get it. There's only really one 
guitar player from this era. Well, it's got to be from Grant Green. Yep. Um, then what album is it from? Is that Born to be Blue? No, it's the other one. The Latin bit? No. Idle Moments. Oh, Idle Moments. I would say that's probably his. It's definitely one of the top ones. Yeah. 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 It's Django. Okay, the tune Django. Well, that is a tune that is known to be played by the modern jazz quartet. Oh. So I was kind of close. Yeah. I'll I'll give you some style points for us. All right, you got this one, Max. You ready? We'll yep. do like two or three more. Do you get it based on that? Salt Peanuts? No. no. Wait. Uh, Clifford Brown and Max Roach? Nope. Oh, shoot. I recognize it. Do it one more time. All right. One more time. I think you got it. Oh, There's I little... heard trumpet. Uh, are Blakey and the Messengers? Nope. Ah, I. That's Philly Sh- Joe on the drums. Oh God. Uh, here I'll give you the group, and we'll see if you can guess the song. You ready? Yeah. The group is Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Red Garland, Paul Chambers, Philly Joe. Oh, is it four? Yeah. Yeah, it's four. I, I knew I knew it, but I just... It that is tough to me. get just from the, the drum intro, though. All right, let's But do... it, it matches the rhythm of the of the melody. Exactly. Yeah, those first eight bars. So I should have gotten it, but yeah. Oh, I, I mean, I eventually did, so... All right, here we go. This one's a, a, a dead, an easy one. I don't. It might say it within the first seconds. We'll see. You uh, know, sometimes we're not prepared for hey, adversity. For adversity. <laughs> what is it? Oh, <laughs> That's a good one. What's that? Yeah, mercy, mercy, mercy. Oh, the fantastic can't. That's like one of the like best jazz spiels of all time. It is. It is. And he was good at that. He was. Yeah. He he real leader. He could have been a preacher, I think. Yeah, and he he really engaged with the audience um, a bit more than than some other cats. So that's a yeah famous start to mercy, 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 written by Joe Zawinul. Yep. All right. Let's do one final one i think you're gonna get this i don't know how the first couple of seconds go but i think you have to know this recording well enough to know anything that's played in the first couple of seconds you ready uh we'll see last one. Oh yeah <laughs> saint thomas baby <laughs> yeah oh man that's yeah funny. max roach max roach on that one yeah with sonny rollins um, that's another tune I played last night. Oh, let's go. Speaking of yeah. Max Roach, Max Roach is actually the drummer on this album that we're getting into today. So let's get into the the album. Let's talk a little bit about the history and get into some of the, the personnel on the album. Max, why don't you get us started with some of the history? And by the way, I think you did a, a, a fantastic job. Like the only one that really stumped you was um, Infant Eyes by Wayne Shorter, which that one's yeah. tough. Well, it, it, yeah, it's a little tougher for me personally because, you know, I really dig Wayne Shorter and I've seen him live and everything. But, you know, I don't typically check him out that often and he's not a player I'm necessarily trying to emulate after. So that was just that's a personal one on me. That's a reminder that I really do need to check out more Wayne Shorter. But that's a great tune and it's a great ballad and it's 
a great composition. When you knew it was Wayne Shorter within like him two seconds of him playing, so that's like that's that's true. That's enough in and of itself. Like you're like, oh, it's Wayne Shorter. What song is it? So I would have been like, I still have no clue what saxophone player this is. So that's where I would have been with that. <laughs> well, I got you beat then. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We'll do one of those with me one time. We'll see how I do. It's definitely going to be so much worse than you just did. So, yeah, kudos. That was a, a job well done. Some of those you got just from, like, the two-second drum intro. And sunny side of the street you got from one note. So, yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, let's uh, let's get into the history of the album Jazz at Massey Hall. Max, why don't you get us started with a little bit just on the history of the album and kind of how this album came to be and who these players are that I kind of alluded to in the intro. Certainly. Yeah. There's a lot to discuss with the, the background and the information behind jazz at Massey hall to start off, you know, after Dizzy Gillespie had left birds, uh, quintet and his band, um, in the mid to late forties, the two would occasionally have reunion concerts or would be featured together at gala events or at televised appearances. So they would play together on and off, but Dizzy had left Bird's group after a while. And the most famous of these reunions was at Toronto's Massey Hall on May 15th, 1953, which is this record that was recorded by Charles Mingus, the bass player, and later released on his record label called Debut. It's basically the last high point of small group bebop recorded as defined by the greats Bird and Dizzy. And this is the last recorded meeting of Bird and Diz together. And for contractual reasons on the original album color, cover, excuse me, Charlie Parker is listed as Charlie Chan because um, he couldn't use his, his real name because his, his full name was, you know, copywritten or, or he was in contract with another record label really so the, i didn't even yeah. know that. that's crazy so sometimes when you see the album cover for jazz and massey hall it'll be the older one where it says charlie chan and you're like who's charlie chan and then you hear <laughs> it and you're like is this some guy sounding like bird what's going on here like wait no no that's no, charlie parker okay cool <laughs> yeah it's, it's bird and he's listed as charlie chan uh because of that that contractual obligation and it's alluding to the last name of his longtime lover who had the last name Chan. And they were kind of basically married, but I don't think they were actually legally married because he was already married to a previous uh, person that he had fallen in love with early in his life. But, but to him, he was really with uh, this woman named Chan. So they used Charlie Chan as his name on the album cover. And, and the live audience of, of this recorded um concert was quite smaller than expected because there was a big boxing match that was taking place at the exact same time as this concert and because of that it was a smaller audience but you cannot tell that because the audience that you can hear through the recording is very reactive and it has great loud applause and you really can't tell that it's that small of an audience um and another aspect to the history here is that really only Bird was able to cash his check from this, this concert. They were paid by the Toronto New Jazz Society, but because of the smaller audience, they were not able to fund the fees to all the musicians. And so only Bird was able to cash his check, probably because he wanted drug money. <laughs> and so he was the quickest to run to the bank. And the other cats didn't get their fees until years later. And Dizzy Gillespie is in particular known 
for talking about how late he got paid for this gig. That's so and, crazy. I would give yeah. up after like a month. <laughs> they don't give. They don't forget. I got screwed. <laughs> yep. Uh, and like I said, the crowd is really energetic and engaging with loud applause. And it's it's hard to imagine that smaller audience, but it, it was kind of poorly attended. And um, doing some research, you know, I have Alan Shipton's book called A New History of Jazz. And he uh, talks about this album and he says, quote, the quintet produced perfect exemplars of all the characteristics of bebop from Roach's choppy rhythms to Powell's astringent cording. So that's, he's talking about Bud Powell, mm -hmm. the piano player. From his glittering piano runs to Parker's dazzling solos packed with quotes and allusions mm. and, and topped by Gillespie's ability to coalesce this demanding music into a form that was greeted not just with enthusiasm, but also with near hysterical acclaim by the audience. Wow. Close quote. I love that's a great that's a great way to put it. That's kind of a great preview into what we're going to be getting into. Yeah, he hit the nail on the head and I couldn't have said it better, so I included that, you know, to to, to talk about. Um also originally Mingus had taken the recording into the studio and had overdubbed some of the bass parts because in the original recording the bass was hard to hear. And so we'll talk about that in a couple of the tracks. You you can tell that and it's kind of apparent. Um and there was a 2002 reissue or remastering that included additional tracks from just the trio of the rhythm section. And I think they may have taken out some of the overdubbing in that reissue as well. Yeah. So, and I think there's, that's like, we're going to get into it, but one of the limitations of this album is definitely going to be the, the actual recording of it itself and kind of the, the equipment and how it was recorded and you're going to be able to tell at certain certain times listening like oh man like there's this is just isn't the the quite the quality that we have today or something you know that would be even 10 years later you know something were recorded live so yeah and so to briefly talk about the personnel you know we start with the great charlie parker um the sax player on the record Born in 1920 in Kansas City, Kansas, KCK, as we call it. And he grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, KC Mo, as we like to say. <laughs> uh, and he started learning sax by age 11, had a very supportive mother who helped him out with anything he needed. Um, and his dad was also a musician and a dancer that was on the road a lot. And after a while, Charlie Parker dropped out of high school to pursue his music career. By the mid-1930s, he was practicing very diligently. And he played in KCMO in the surrounding area, as well as the Ozarks, where he's known for shedding 8 to 15 hours a day for a period of a few years. And part of that was because in 1936, there's the classic story <laughs> of Papa Joe Jones throwing the cymbal during bird solo at a jam session at Reno Club. Um, that is well depicted in Clint Eastwood's um, film about bird. And, and I, I don't know if that's completely how it went down but more or less that's the story and so because bird was was losing time and and not really in the pocket and he wasn't swinging that hard you know they kind of made uh, an example out of him and said you know you got stuff to work on kid and so he that you know was the motivation he needed to shed you know multiple multiple hours a day uh soon after that that might be one of the best things that ever happened in jazz was Papa Joe throwing a cymbal at, at Bird. Yeah, yeah. Because if, if he didn't do it, who knows how, if Bird would have went and developed like his his sound the way he did, you know? 
Right. He was so embarrassed and, and he really wanted to, to get better. And so that, you know, was one of the jump starts to the real um, innovation that Bird brought to the music. He was kind of first recorded with Jay McShann, the KC legend uh, blues drenched piano player. In 1940, there's some recordings with Bird and Jay McShann. He played with McShann and then Earl Hines a little bit. We've, which we've talked about here on the Jazz Jam. And he basically was really innovative in, in developing the bebop approach in the early 40s alongside Dizzy Gillespie, who's the trumpet player on this record. Uh, but a lot of that development was not recorded at the time because there was a recording ban from uh, the Union from 1942 to 1944, the Federation of Musicians, um, that uh implemented a union strike so a lot of the black musicians at the time did not record from 1942 to 1944 and that is essential timing for the development of bebop which we don't have on record um so really we don't get you know great bebop recordings until around 1945 when bird recorded for the savoy label um, and, uh, and those are essential, you know, listening for anybody wanting to understand the evolution of, of jazz and, and the bebop movement. He then played in L.A. for a little bit. He cashed in his ticket home for heroin money. And so by this time, he was deep in his drug addiction. He had started, you know, really messing around with drugs in the mid-1930s when he was on painkillers for a car accident he endured. Um and he was known for having moments of sort of lashing out. Um, there was one time he set his hotel bed sheets on fire and ran around the hotel lobby naked while intoxicated. <laughs> intoxicated. And that's where he was committed to the uh, Camarillo or Camarillo Mental Hospital for six months. And he continued his heroin addiction after that, unfortunately, when he returned to New York. Um, but he continued to record and tour. And in 1949, Norman Grants had arranged for Bird to record with strings. So that's where we get Charlie Parker with strings, another monumental album. He continued to play until his death in 1955. So he was only 34 or 35 years old mm. when he passed. And he died in the home of the patron, patron and friend Panonica, whom Thelonious Monk was really clo close with, too. Um, and, you know, the, the initial cause of death was death was pneumonia and a bleeding ulcer but he had an advanced case of cirrhosis and he had a heart attack as well and the coroner that that looked him looked at his body over after he died mistook his body for a 50 or 60 year old person mm. when estimating his age after reviewing his insides so he had really just torn up his body with heroin and and alcohol and and all the substance abuse you could think of and he is buried in Kansas City, Missouri, and I've, I've actually seen his grave and, and have played next to his grave. So a lot of a lot of things in there about Bird, and I, I wanted to take a second and really get into his life. And mm -hmm. it was so short, but he did so much. And imagine how much more he could have done if he hadn't died in that way. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking, is imagine if Bird had continued to develop his style and his playing through the sixties and, you know, the kind of post bop era. I, it's just crazy to, to think of and how he was able to have such an impact on the music and only live until his mid thirties, you know? Right. And, you know, he's known for pawning off horns for drug money 
And a lot of cats, you know, really looked up to Bird because of how awesome of a player he was and, and the way he was developing the music and the way he was playing that a lot of them just did drugs because he did drugs. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a sort of a cesspool of bebop players getting into these hard drugs where the swing cats, most of them did not. And that was, that was part of a, a negative consequence of the bebop era where, you know, it was awesome playing and musically uh, interesting and more developed, but there were these other societal and personal issues that a lot of the musicians had. And so you get a lot of early deaths because of that. Yeah. And how many players do we hear about like Parker and we'll talk about Bud Powell and Dexter Gordon who just had to take time off because they were so battling so hard with these drug addictions. I mean, we talked about Dexter Gordon on our review of go and how he had to take nearly a decade off to try to get his, you know, drug addiction under wraps, which he was able to kind of get past that. And then we got a lot of great music from him afterwards, but yeah, just a lot of these bebop guys, you know, unfortunately got, got, you know, into that and they were all playing with each other. And, you know, if you know anything about addiction, then that's just, you know, it's obviously when they're playing with each other and they're all addicted and, you know, it, it obviously is hard for them to, to be able to kick those habits, you know, when they're all together like that and struggling with the same thing. Right. Right. And then we also get Dizzy on trumpet here. Dizzy Gillespie. We, we've gone over him on the Sunny Side Up episode, so we won't get into him here. Then we get Bud Powell, the piano and composer. He's the pianist on this record. He's known as the Charlie Parker of the piano because of his right hand and all the, the, the lines he, he could do, you know, very musical. He started learning piano at age five and his dad was a stride pianist. He got into swing music early and began playing in New York. He had met Thelonious Monk at Uptown House and became Monk's protege. So he and Monk were pretty close. Mm -hmm. And he was playing early on with Cootie Williams and his group, you know, the great trumpet player who was with Duke Ellington. And then that gig ended for Bud, and he got into some trouble. He, He couldn't really handle it, losing that work. And so he was found drunk in public. He was beaten by the police. He was incarcerated for about 10 days. And he maintained headaches and some physical ailments from that. And because of that, he was hospitalized in Bellevue for a period of about two months, two and a half months. Then he started to play regularly again um, with people like Dexter Gordon, Sonny Stiff, Fats Navarro, play with Bird in 47. He was hospitalized again after being found incoherent and rambunctious after a bar fight. Pretty soon, he got back to it and recorded a lot in 49 and 50 for Blue Note and Norman Grants. Hospitalized on and off and on and off again, given meds for schizophrenia, which negatively affected his playing. And if you didn't know, his brother was also a great piano player, Richie Powell, who had died in a car crash. And that's a famous car crash because Clifford Brown, the great trumpet player, was also in the car. So that actually, you know, we all talk about Clifford Brown dying in that car crash, but Richie Powell died too. Mm -hmm. And that's a, you know, sometimes Bud Powell overshadows Richie, but we got to remember Richie. We'll go over him in another episode. Yeah. And I think one thing um, Max had mentioned, you know, these hospitalizations and oftentimes these were done in like asylums or like psychiatric wards at the time because Bud Powell was 
known to struggle with, you know, mental illness. And he was given drugs for schizophrenia, but never, I mean, diagnoses back then were like never super accurate. They didn't really, the science just wasn't what it is today. So there were some musicians who said that they thought that like they were experimenting on Bud and like had messed with his brain and stuff. And there was, there were times in, I think it was the like the early 50s where they said that his playing just wasn't the same. They thought that they had messed with him and he just wasn't he was kind of a a shell of himself. Um so it's just that's kind of interesting to note his history with with mental illness and kind of having to deal with the institution of, you know, psychiatric wards at at the time. Yeah, that these these are great points to make. I I was going to get into that, but you did it better. <laughs> so thank you for that and and you're right bud powell is is one of those tragedies in jazz around this time not only because of, of drugs and alcohol but because of the mental state and and part of that was because of you know societal issues you know him being beaten on by the police um not being taken seriously probably in those mental institutions mm-hmm. And in and out, you know, it's it's not good for consistency that's necessary for a stable and, and steady life. So he had a lot of, of issues with that, um, both, you know, from from him and, and just from society. He did find some happiness. He did move to Paris in 1959 with a close lover of his. And he performed in New York again in the early to mid 60s. But he was still dealing with alcoholism. And he did pass away in 1966, and he's really regarded as a genius because of his uh, developments musically on the piano. Yeah, and I think one thing that's interesting to note, and I've heard um, stories that this move to Paris with this this uh, partner, that at the time he moved, he like wasn't fully like functional like the old Bud Powell, and that she kind of like was controlling on like all of the things. I like, kind of was like just his caretaker and kind of told him what to do. And some cats said that like he was just like completely under wraps. And then he moved back to New York and kind of um, got his, his life back again in like the sixties. So that's, that's one thing that's interesting is I forget the the name of this woman, but they said that she kind of was like, just made all of his decisions for him when he was in Paris. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and, and that's not the only time you'll see that um, there's been, and I, you know, there's been issues with uh, the the romantic lover of of some of these players taking advantage or trying to guide them in a certain way or or you know be heavily involved in certain decisions that really they don't need to be involved in. Yeah. Um, I mean, their input is necessary and you know stuff like that. But you're right. That woman, I can't remember her name either, but she kind of took advantage of them. Yeah, that that's time. what it seems like, and that's what some people kind of were saying. And then the happiness that I was alluding to earlier was when he made that move to New York again and started playing oh, yep, more. Yep. So that's what I, I, I yeah, I, I was uh, ahead of myself. Yeah. But, and I think he did have a fond, grow to have a fondness for Paris. And he wrote yeah. a few tunes that he wrote that are kind of like, um, like for the, for Paris and some of the French people. So th- there mm-hmm. definitely seems like he did grow to appreciate that. But the situation that, that led him there seems like it was maybe a little bit, um, constrictive or not fully his own you know free will definitely definitely another cat who's known for being you know a little touchy is the great charles mingus (laughs) that's a a nice way to put it yeah who's the bass player and uh the guy who you know who really put this record out there on his record label debut 
He lived from 1922 to 79. He was known as one of the great jazz musicians and one of the greatest composers of the 20th century. He had a career spanning three decades working with anyone you could think of, Bird, Duke Ellington, Red Norvo, Louis Armstrong, Herbie Hancock, and many more. He's known for his notorious temper and for his high expectations from bandmates. And he had this thing called the Jazz Workshop, which cats called behind his back the sweatshop uh, where he would have you know an eight to ten piece group work and perform master works that were you know pretty arranged but there were elements of 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 you know intense improvisation and and freedom in that and that kind of anticipated the free jazz movement a little bit and there's a lot of musical development in this music that mingus is responsible for but you know he really had a temper he, he, he was kind of, of, like I said, touched in the head a little bit. He's one of those geniuses we talk about. Mm -hmm. But I know in particular there's one story with, I think, trombonist Jimmy Nepper where they're on stage, and this is in public. You know, they're on stage in person. And Mingus and Jimmy get into it. And some for some reason, Mingus punches Jimmy in the face, and he permanently damages Jimmy Nepper's embouchure to where Jimmy cannot play certain high notes on the trombone any longer after that incident. Mm. And and there's stories of Mingus throwing things at players. I know, you know, the great tenor player Booker Irvin did a lot with Mingus, who I really dig and we'll get into in another episode. Um, but, you know, Mingus would, would kind of be uh, abusive to these players. Yep. And, you know, it was, it was coming from passion for the music but i think in a lot of these cases he went way too far and it's it's kind of well documented certain moments like that and and he didn't care if it was right on stage or if it was in public or you know what it was he would just he would just showcase it in the moment and he was kind of a hothead at certain times um so a lot more to say on mingus that we'll get into at some point later on yeah and it seemed like mingus is a guy that like Max said, just such a musical genius. And his influence on the music is, I mean, all of these guys, their influence on the music is, we honestly can almost not put it into words. But he's like this guy that so many people wanted to play with, but then so many people like didn't want to play with him at the same time because you want to play with him because he's Mingus. But then the way that he treated people, like I think there were musicians who just wouldn't play with him as well, like guys who just refused to play with him because of these things. So yeah, definitely kind of a, a character in the music to put it nicely. Yeah. And, and people would refuse to play with them or like in Jimmy Nepper's case, um, they refused to play with them for a period of time. And then later on, after a few years, they would play with them a lot again. So yeah. there was this sort of love hate relationship. It seemed like, like between a toxic Mingus. relationship. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. was a toxic, you know, kind of, um, professional relationship that Mingus had with a lot of different performers and musicians. And, um, you know, he, he had kind of a, a decent career, long career, but he, he suffered, um, towards the end of his life with Lou Gehrig's disease. And he, he died trying to seek treatment for that in 1979, um, really from a heart attack, but it was, you know, through complications with ALS, um, which he had towards the end of his life which he only lived to be, I think, 56 or so, 57. So, you know, not that long, but, you know, longer than Bird and, and some of these other cats. And then another cat on the record, the great drummer Max Roach, actually lived a pretty long life, 
born in North Carolina in 1924, um, lived to about 2007. And I actually remember reading in the newspaper about Max Roach dying. So I, you know, we were in, I guess, eighth grade or something. Uh, Max was <laughs> but, much more into jazz than I was at the time. Yeah, I remember reading Max Roach's obituary in the newspaper. He was, of course, a pioneer of bebop, one of the most important drummers in history. You know, you think of Monk, Duke Ellington, Stan Getz, Charles Mingus, Dinah Washington, Sonny Rollins. He played with them all. He's known for co-leading a group with the great Clifford Brown that I mentioned earlier. He formed a percussion group called Mboom. And he also was a teacher. He taught at University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And he was well known for his activism during the Civil Rights Movement. Um, so another prominent, important player on this record. And this is just a powerhouse cast of players on this album. Yeah. All right. We're going to get into it. Um, this first track on the record is Perdido. The title Perdido refers to Perdido Street in New Orleans, Louisiana. It was written by Juan Teasel, a Puerto Rican trombonist and composer who worked with the great Duke Ellington. And he's also known for the tune Caravan. It was first recorded in late 1941, but really it's known for its early January 1942 recording. And so that 1942 recording is usually considered the first actual recording of Perdido, even though they did, you know, a, a, a pre-trial sort of record of that song in, in December 1941. And there's many recordings of this track. Everyone covers Perdido. It's a great tune. It's an AABA song form. It's kind of similar to rhythm changes, but not quite. Different bridge, but lots of 251s. Here they start right on the head. It's not the full head, though. It's it's the last A section of the melody. So it's kind of as if they started the recording in the middle of their playing. And that's one aspect of this record that Dwayne and I have some issues with. You know, there's some recording um, inconsistencies and there's some cuts that happen occasionally. And this is one that we get right away where it seems like the recording, you know, actually started in the middle of the first chorus of the melody. It's like they had an intern doing like the helping with sound and he just forgot to hit the record button like until like, <laughs> like, like 30 seconds in and like he's like the red light's not on. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. like what I imagine in my head is like some guy is like, oh man, I'm supposed to record this. <laughs> I Yeah, something happened there. Um, so they're just, we're getting the last A section of the head and then, um, Dizzy plays two bars into the top of the form where it's a two bar break to go to the bird solo. So Charlie Parker takes the first solo and he starts off simmering, adding in uses of space in between ideas to start off the solo nice and easy. You know, we think about Charlie Parker and all the lines and all the ideas and the harmonic, um, uh, substitutions and things like that that he did. But really, he was a master at using space as well. And this first solo on Perdido proves that. You know, he kind of uses space and then plays one long phrase with lots of nice movement up and down the horn during the bridge, not taking a breath or a break within a six to seven bar phrase of that bridge. And I want us to listen to that snippet together. This is around the 30 second to 39 second mark. Yeah. So, you know, he's just going for that that bridge. Um, there's no space in there. 
But preceding that, he did use space in the in the first couple of A sections. But when we get to the bridge, we're like, okay, that's quintessential bird. And just the his movement up and down the horn, you know, the, the chromatic approaches, um, the sound, the flexibility, it's smooth, it's effortless. Everything you get in that nine seconds is what defines bird. Yeah, and I think that's one thing about this album is like when you think of Bird and some of these Bop guys, not maybe so much Dizzy, you think of like, okay, it's just like all of these woven Bop lines and but they they're more than the, just that, you know. They have very good swing feel and sensibility. And so and they they are able to use space. It's not just 16th note runs the entire time. So that's one thing is just like this album just kind of showcases how great and how musical they are and their ability to use space and kind of the development of those bop lines absolutely in his second chorus he does play longer notes um, that lead to busier lines and he has great themes and phrasing and i want us to to hear a snippet 132 to 136 and this is just a lick that's commonly used mm -hmm. on this album in particular that both dizzy and bird play quite a bit and i've heard other do it as well Others do it as well, um, including swing cats like Ben Webster and swing era players. And, and I, I play this like quite occasionally too. Um, it's just, it's just really, it just feels good and it's not that challenging, but it swings hard. So this is 132. Nah. Yeah, that's a great, you know, sort of, um, almost just pentatonic. Yep. lick you know but it, it swings hard yeah it's great yeah um and it's an idea of a common uh phrase that contributes to the dictionary of jazz language so a lick like that even though it's not that challenging is one to use and, and does kind of illustrate a common sort of if you think about it like a dictionary you know it's a word in in jazz improvisation yeah, and it's just like we say the term language, jazz language a lot, and like it might not make sense to a lot of people, but it's like Max is saying, it's like kind of like a catchphrase. Like if we were to say something that's like, you know, like a catchphrase that people use, you know, whether it be what you know, whatever it is, that's like kind of when people use licks like this and different cats will use the same lick, it's kind of like someone using a catchphrase. It's something that people know, something people are familiar with. And so that's kind of like you just think of that in a same the same sense as far as the language of jazz right right it is a language um and i want to i want to get another aspect to birds playing here across to the to the listeners this is 158 to 218 i want you to play it first and then i'll talk about it Yeah. So at the first half of that snippet, you know, it's all double time. Yep. And that aspect of bird is essential because it's it's hard. It's not only challenging to play that fast, but it's challenging to play that to play that fast and make it feel good. And he can do that because of where he's emphasizing um, direction. Right. So there's direction in, in everything he did there with that double time playing. 
when you go up and down and when you change direction, usually at that moment where you're changing that direction on the, excuse me, on the instrument, you are going to um, emphasize that and you're going to accent it. And so you're going to tongue those moments. But a lot of that, you're not tonguing or you're, you're kind of slurring or you're half tonguing where your tongue, you know, if we're talking about um, fundamentals with the embouchure of, of jazz playing on the saxophone, your tongue is kind of near the reed, but it's not necessarily going back and forth to tongue every other note or tongue every note. Generally, you don't want to tongue every note. You want to especially tongue the changes in direction of your line on the instrument. Or you can kind of emphasize the ands of the beats, you know, the upbeats, um, which will help get your line to feel good in a swing uh, context. So it'll make you swing harder if you're doing that. So if you listen to his double time feel and where he's changing direction and emphasizing, you know, movement in his lines, that is quintessential playing for uh, saxophone in particular, but it, it's contextually in the bebop tradition yeah and one thing i like about that and that's we heard kind of the transition into dizzy's solo is that we did get those those double time lines but then we got kind of more like a swing blues idea from them kind of to book and so because that's kind of what i was talking about you know as we get some of those fundamental you know jazz things that aren't just the bebop um like ideas so i i liked how he kind of bookended and transitioned into dizzy solo with that that more swing uh kind of lick yeah and i wanted to play that clip also because dizzy is piggybacking off of what bird ended with so yeah. he's dizzy is is playing that lick that bird ended with and, and bird kind of bleeds into the form a little bit to pass off the baton to diz um but that's a great transition moment and it's cool to do that in between soloists and you're just kind of passing the baton over another moment i think we need to listen to is 314 to 340 this is a cool moment in dizzy gillespie's solo um let's play it first and then i'll talk about it this is 314 to 340 Oh, how swinging is that? Uh, it is super swinging. And, you know, at the beginning part over the bridge, he's sticking to one idea and using uh, that idea to play over each chord change. And he's playing around with an idea, you know, over each chord. And so that's essential bop technique. Um, yep. And then he's going to be quite rhythmic and start doing something differently and yep. play those feel-good trumpet screams that are reminiscent of great swing era yes. trumpeters like Roy Eldridge. Yep, that's exactly who came to mind. Yeah. And kind of that um that like backbeat kind of da da huh da like thing that he's doing. That's just so that's swing. That's what that is. Like oh. Yes. And Dizzy was a big fan of Roy Eldridge and Roy Eldridge is one of those players that helped transition the music from swing era to bebop while not being necessarily a bebop player like Dizzy is, but he was he was essential in the transition and the development of the music. And Dizzy was heavily influenced by Katz, especially Roy Eldridge. And and those are two snippets that, you know, if 
I, I thought about dividing it up and doing just the bridge where you, you hear the, the bop technique of, of playing one idea and then changing it for each chord of a bridge. And then the second snip part of the snippet where he's imitating Roy Eldridge. But to me, we need to hear it together in context because it it reflects the um, all the essential ingredients of a great jazz solo. And also, just because Dizzy is a bopper does not mean he does not have swing era elements in his playing, and it does not mean that he's not going to swing hard because obviously he does. And it comes across to the audience as well, and you get matching intensity from Max Roach on drums. So you're getting great interaction from the rhythm section. You're getting um, a sort of uh, change of pace in playing where, you know, we want to treat certain sections of tunes differently and we want to evolve during our solo. And it's great the way Dizzy does it there. Yeah. And I think that Dizzy is like probably one of the most swing like heavy bebop players. Cause sometimes when you're listening to Parker uh, to bird, it's, it's really bebop. And I mean, he's like, that's what he did is innovate, you know, all of those lines and the moving lines and you listen to Bud Powell and it's, it almost sounds like if Charlie Parker sat down and played the piano at times because he's just so influenced by him. Um, but with Dizzy, it feels like everything he plays, even when he's playing bop lines, there's just there's an element in of swing in what he's playing. And I really appreciate Dizzy. And it feels like he brings that to this album a lot. There's kind of always something that's always going to refer back to swing. And then, you know, very likely is that influence from Roy Eldridge. Right, right. So you see the connection of the development of, of jazz through through those moments where Dizzy is obviously emulating the great Roy Eldridge and, and pulling from the swing era. And later on in his solo, he, he does more Bob lines, but at 409, he actually quotes the melody to his own tune, Burke's Works, mm-hmm. which to me, I laughed out loud because how great do you have to be to quote your own song? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're not quoting some like standard. You're like, I'm no, I'm going to quote my tune. Like, Oh, that's man. a whole that's a whole nother level you, you know? gotta be dizzy to do that yeah i that was a that was a great moment to me um also as towards the end of the solo as dizzy is ending bud powell's copping comes out more and he's getting busier which leads into a bud powell solo so i don't know if that was on purpose or if that's something he's known for but i just noticed that bud powell plays heavier um towards the end of dizzy solo to kind of start or initiate himself getting into his own solo yeah so that was yeah Bud Powell's definitely known for kind of maybe a, a choppier kind of comping style it's, it's certainly at points where his other guys might be a little bit more melodic Bud Powell's going to be a little bit more rhythmic and like kind of choppy with what he's playing but it definitely makes sense to lead into his solo that's going to be you know the typical Bud Powell kind of kind of ideas going on there now, one point I want to make is that there are, of course, a lot of single line movements in Bud Powell's right hand, but there is also an actual considerable amount of left hand accompaniment in this solo and in Bud Powell's playing on this record in general, um, which was a little bit unexpected. A lot of times we think of Bud Powell as the cat who really just diminished the role of the left hand in jazz playing. But honestly, I think he used a lot more left hand than we think or that we, you know, some somehow we seem to forget that, you know, because we'll listen to players like Sonny Clark, yep. some of, you know, some of what Hank Jones did, 
they used quite a bit less of left hand to me than Bud Powell did. Um, I don't know. Yeah, and Bud Powell was really influenced by Art Tatum, uh, as so many guys were. A guy who's going to use stretch out the entire piano and use both hands. And so Bud Powell, his left hand is fantastic, but in what he was doing and what he was innovating with bebop piano there are a lot of times where it wasn't really about the left hand right it's more about the right hand and forming these lines rather than we're taking things from the swing era right and where guys are going to be playing things in a swing fashion with both hands right and now we're in the bebop era where let's focus on these lines and kind of take uh what charlie parker's doing and kind of put that onto the piano so i think we get we that's what he's known for right is innovating bebop lines on the piano but not to forget that he was so heavily influenced by Art Tatum that he had a really great left hand and would use it at times as well. But we just what we think of is his influence on the right hand and as far as Bob Piano goes. Yeah, and I think that's a good point to make. To end this, they they play the usual sort of shout chorus that's associated with Perdido for the first two A sections on the outhead, and it's played at a softer dynamic. So what do you know? Dynamics are important. You know, go Who figure. Would have thought. <laughs> and then the drums actually take it on the bridge, which uh, with a much louder dynamic and more intensity. Max Roach is, is I don't know, he's on something on this record. Uh, yeah. uh, very, very energetic. And they close with the last A section of the head. And it sounds like there's a weird cut that was used that Mingus must have fiddled around with. Um, but you can hear the crowd distinctly going wild. And so that's the first moment where we get the audience interaction that I was alluding to earlier. Yeah. And we get some clapping like after solos and stuff. You can tell that the the audience is there and they're honed in, they're interactive. But the applause that we get at the end of the track is, you know, you would think the whole hall is full. You know, you wouldn't know what Max said earlier about there not being, uh, you know, quite filling up the whole place. But so I think that's that's interesting to note there. You would think, oh man, this place is bumping. So, right. Uh, and then the second track is the <laughs> one of the most important, I think, bebop tunes, "Salt Peanuts." So, Dwayne, this one was on you. What do you hear with "Salt Peanuts"? Yeah, I think this is just an awesome this tune. Like, kind of just screams Dizzy Gillespie to me. It's just it shows his personality so well. It's written by Dizzy. Um, it's a contrafact of the tune I Got Rhythm. It has the same 32-bar A-A-B-A structure and harmony, but the melody's different. That's what a contrafact is, is when you take the changes of a, a song and you write a different melody. We get that all the time in jazz. So that's what Salt and Peanuts is. And it's kind of a, a simple tune in the arrangement. Um, it's just a four-measure riff phrase that's played twice in the A section. So nothing super crazy going on in the A sections. But then the bridge is a little bit more complex than what goes on in the A section. And you'll kind of hear the way that people play over the A sections versus the bridge, especially in the, the melody. Um, kind of hear what I'm talking about there. And this is it's a burn in tempo. It is bebop. Um, that's standard. If you're going to play this tune, you're going to play it at that kind of burn in tempo. Um, and it starts with an intro. The drums come in first. Max Roach comes in with that energy that he's been bringing and he's going to keep bringing throughout the album. Really him and Mingus, they're just driving this entire album, which you need in bebop. You got to have a rhythm section that's going to be willing to push, you know, push it forward. And, you know, they're playing it some pretty high tempo. So that's that's what you'd expect. And then um, they play the head once through together uh, with the two horns. And then we get the... The infamous, or not infamous, just the famous um, vocals on the second time through the A section, the Salt Peanuts from Dizzy Gillespie, which is just, it's iconic. Um, 
So salt peanuts, salt peanuts. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. Oh man, it's just that's it's so cool. It's so clever. It's so quirky. It's just it is like I said, it is Dizzy Gillespie, and um, then we get a bird solo which has lots of like Dizzy hooting and hollering interjections, which I really love, and I love this aspect of this recording and this live recording. It's Can just, we? Uh, yeah, I want us. I want us to listen to that with the with the audience. Um, yeah, let's let's do that. Let's do that right now. Let's because it's, it's just one thing I love is you just you really hear these guys like interacting with each other, like really appreciating what each other is doing. So yeah, let's get into that a little bit, Max. What uh, what's the minute marker you want me to to line up there? Well, I was thinking one twelve or so to about one thirty, one thirty two. Yeah, start around one twelve. All right, let's get into it. All right, here we go. Oh man! All right, all right. Uh oh! <laughs> all right, I'm ready. I'm I'm getting there. All right, you ready? One twelve. Here we go. Salt peanuts, salt peanuts. The name of the salt. <laughs> salt peanuts, salt peanuts. Salpina! <laughs> How can you not love Dizzy Gillespie? Oh my God, what a character! He is so fun. He's such uh, a riot. He just keeps yelling peanuts in the background. <laughs> I was that was a great moment, and it reminds me a little bit of Louis Armstrong and the mm-hmm. way you know some of those early swing cats or you know trad jazz players would vocalize you know verbally. Um, a little more and a lot of times Lewis did it at the end of songs you know he, he'd do that mumbling thing where it was kind of indi- indicative to the audience to start clapping and it was the end of the song but I think that moment really screamed to me that the swing tradition and some of the fundamentals of jazz that were starting to get lost around the bebop era or just soon after but here Dizzy keeps that and I think that just screams to his personality and the fact that these cats are a connected they are essentially connected to what came before them yep and some some people really don't think that way they 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 tend to think there's this dividing line mm-hmm. between you know 1944 and 1945 and anything before 1945 is not as relevant not as necessary to check out not as musically interesting but i am a full advocate of the opposite way to think about it and that everything is connected musically between 1945 and the things that preceded it i think that's a beautiful way to put it i think that yeah some people might look at like and we obviously have different eras in jazz right we've we've kind of gone into a lot of it on the podcast but you might some people might think all right when the bop era bebop era starts the swing era dies and that's not true and dizzy is showing that and that you know, even elements from traditional jazz and the entertain entertainer aspect of Louis Armstrong, like that stuff doesn't die just because we're in the bop era. And some people like to think, or it's you know, the like okay, this is what bebop is, and these are this is how the music is now. When it's like we still have those fundamental elements, and Dizzy is a great proponent of bringing a lot of those elements. And we've mentioned just a few of them, you know, just thus far um, into the this bebop era. Yeah, and you know, I. I don't want to say too much uh, uh, about what I'm about to say, but 
you know, for instance, last night um, there was a mo- there. You know, part of the first gig I did, it was kind of a jam session. Um, the second half of it, and so somebody came up, and um, I think they're originally from New Orleans, and so they called the tune "Stardust," which mm. is a you know great we track. We covered that, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, not great track, but great tune rather. Yep. And uh, and so when it was my turn to solo on Stardust, you know, I was doing the Coleman Hawkins thing, vibrato, you know, mm. up and down sort of playing, um, and 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 after that tune, you know, two people, one was a bass player, came up to me and said, you know, you, I mean, he was poking fun. He said, you know, you really should do more vibrato. And, <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> and of course, I was a joke because I, I I just really milked it and milked that style. Um, but you know, my point to him was, I don't hear anyone else around me doing it. So I think it's musically interesting. I think it's musically appropriate. And if I want to go there, I'm going to go there. And I don't see why there's this sort of hesitation Mm. to go there from certain players who think that's, you know, an old style, um, outdated, not relevant, antiquated. I think it's really relevant, at least in that moment when I did it. And I know that because the drummer behind me is an older cat, um, really dug it. And he said, wow, that's the old style. And I said, yep. And that's, you know, that to me was a moment to bring that out. And it seemed relevant to me. And I think sometimes there's, again, there's this hesitation. There's this idea that we don't, we don't need to play like that anymore, but why not? Um, especially if we're doing Stardust. I don't, exactly. Thank you. That is the point that I was about to make is, it's like there's this like you have to do what's hip in jazz and what people think is hip in jazz when you're playing these days. And what's hip to play on Stardust is what was hip to play on Stardust when it was written. Like that's yeah. that's hip to do that, to play the song in the style of what would what's contemporary to the song. Like to say, oh no, you can't you have to play Stardust in a way that's hip now. That's like that's so kind of weird to say that. And that's like I don't know, this weird kind of thing that modern jazz has that like you have to play things in this kind of modern kind of way, which. Yeah. And it seems musically antithetical to the purpose of what we're doing. If we're doing a jam session, you know, you're going to get a variety of players and hopefully a variety of styles. I don't want everyone to sound the same and I don't want every player to sound the same on every tune. You know, like what, why am I going to try and sound the exact same on Stardust and all blues why am i going to try and sound the exact same on summertime and i got rhythm i'm not i I, and i think that's a to me that's a positive um thing to go for um i i don't know i guess you know there would be disagreements with with what i just said but i i think musically that's the way to go and maybe in in five or eight years i'll think the opposite but for right now that makes the most sense to me yeah, I yeah, I just think that's a great point. Let's get back into we kind of took a, a tangent there. Um, <laughs> we did. It's, Sorry, it's relevant back to you know what we were talking about with Dizzy and just kind of keeping the tradition of the music throughout the music, and that's what Dizzy has done so well in the bebop. And he might have been people might have been saying things to him like you know like that little comment like oh you should play with more vibro. They might be saying to Dizzy like oh like you know, play some, you know, play, you know, play some more swing ideas or all, you know, like something, you know, something like that, you know, who knows what people said to Dizzy at the time, but that's true. So, yeah, but all right, let's keep, uh, let's keep moving along. Um, 
that bird solo has a lot of uh you know that hooting and hollering which i love there's lots of great lines from bird to start his solo um and then he holds out a note at 142 and dizzy yells a i also kind of yelled a i love that and then he takes this idea and he transposes it around at uh, 204 to 209. And I just want to take a listen from 204 to 219 and kind of listen for the bop lines. And then that transposed idea, which we've talked about is, you know, a bebop technique um, and get a feel for those those techniques that uh, Bird has so cleverly innovated. So this is 204 to 219 in the track Salt Peanuts. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a uh, talk about hip. I mean, and, <laughs> uh, you know, he was doing that uh, sort of swing extended technique where you're doing it, where you're, you know, you're putting down fingers that don't change the note, but change the sound and the timbre of the note and you mm. go back and forth. And that was bird, you yeah. know, it's, it's so <laughs> my point stands. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, but yeah, I just love that's kind of you get an idea for those techniques and kind of the development of the music into the bebop and what kind of Charlie Parker's um, imprint on that was with kind of that that quick uh, clip right there. And then I really love the transition from Bird to Dizzy solo um, at uh, two thirty six. Dizzy starts to play kind of he starts to kind of playfully interject into Bird solo, and then they pass the baton. They, we kind of talked about this before with Perdido, the kind of passing of the baton of the solo. Um, and I just kind of love that that playful interaction. And there's kind of an interesting moment here where Max Roach stops playing during this transition. I want to listen to this section and kind of get Max's thoughts on everything that's going on in this transition from you know the Dizzy kind of. Uh, interjecting to the Max Roach kind of just stopping playing and kind of see what you think is going on here, Max, with this. I'm ready. Nah. <laughs> Yeah, so it is an awkward moment. I, I think there's a few things going on there. Um, number one, I think it's a moment where Bird was maybe going to take another chorus, but the lick idea he was playing almost resembled the one of the transition sort of shout licks from other recordings that they've done of Salt Peanuts. Um, and so Dizzy chimed in playing that along with him, but I don't think Bird was ready to do that transitory lick, and Dizzy that's why Dizzy stopped doing it. And, but, but he kind of also kind of kept doing it. And he was indicating that Dizzy, you know, he himself wanted to play that sort of shout lick idea to transition to the next soloist. And usually when they do that transition lick on this tune, um, there's been previous recordings of them doing it where Max Roach or who's ever on drums. I don't remember if it's Max Roach or not. Probably not. But who, who's ever, you know, usually the rhythm section altogether will, will take a, a two bar break or a one bar break and stop after that transition lick and then start at the top of the form again. Yep. So I think it, in my uh, sort of analysis, Max Roach was doing the right thing and Bud Powell was the one doing the wrong thing where he on piano did not catch, you know, that, that tradition of, of the treatment of that 
sort of transition lick and he kept playing and Max Roach did catch it and stopped and Bud Powell was supposed to stop with him. It was supposed to be sort of a, a one bar break or two bar break into the next solo. Um, so I think that's what's going on there. Yeah, it's just it's a it's a super interesting moment. It seems like they were all just kind of on like slightly different pages, you know, as to like what how are we going to do this? Maybe I'm sure that they didn't even really like super arrange everything that they did. So they, you know, they're just kind of going with it on the spot. But yeah, it's just interesting because it seems like all right, match Max Roach is trying to do one thing, but Mingus kind of keeps playing too. So Oh, that's right. Yeah. So I, I it's think like, Mingus What's yep. going, you know, it's just a moment of like, oh, who, what is going on? What's meant to be going on here and what's actually going on? Seems like it's two different things. And who knows if there was a really even plan for how they're going to do it. They kind of heard something and they were trying to commute. They were trying to play along to what they heard. But then it wasn't they weren't all on the same page with that idea. Right. I think Dizzy and maybe Bird, too, wanted to do that transition lick, but the rhythm section did not know they were going to do it or wasn't expecting it or thought Bird was going to take another chorus. Um, and so that's why it's sort of flubby and flabby and conjumbled and and not together there. But they're still kind of in time. And so yeah. they definitely, oh, yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. you know, they're in time and they start, you know, after that that bar break or whatever together. Yep. And so that's the professionalism that is evident in moments like that. And if you're Mingus and Max Roach is stopping, but Bud Powell is stopping, is not stopping, then you don't stop. That would, it would not, like, if you're Mingus, you just keep playing there because the worst thing you can do is stop and that's just Bud Powell playing by himself. That would sound the most awkward. So I think True. Mingus did the right thing, like, the just keep walking on the base. Like, the, you know, like, that's, it's going to keep driving that tempo. And so, yeah, they're all right back together on the, you know, the first beat of, of Dizzy's solo there. Right. And, and I, and I say, you know, I think they, or at least Dizzy meant to do the transition like, because later on they do one right mm. before the piano solo, yeah. which, which is a different one that they've done in previous salt peanuts recordings. So it seems like at that point they're all on the same page, but yeah, I really right. like uh Dizzy solo here. I think there's the dynamics we get from uh Dizzy solo. They're just fantastic. And another thing is his higher range on the horn they uses. I think it's just, it's very dizzy and just the dynamics and the range here on this solo is what stands out to me. And then we get a Bud Powell solo. And this is kind of, in my opinion, the perfect example of the difference in piano playing from the swing to the bebop era. And he is one of the innovators of this style. And like I said, it just here it sounds like he's really trying to emulate a lot of what Bird is doing with the the lines um, with Powell's right hand on the piano. And he starts to bring a lot. At first, it's not a lot of left hand, kind of like we mentioned, which is what you'd think of that Bud Powell bebop style. But he starts to bring in the left hand a little bit later on to comp and gets a little bit more rhythmic with his playing Um but he still kind of interjects in with the bebop line. So he's starting to kind of mix those styles in a little bit, some more rhythmic stuff as well as like mixing in some, some lines there. And then we get a Max uh, Roach solo. And one thing that I love that he does is he quotes the salt and peanuts on the drums. And that's just awesome. I love that. Just it's a reminder for drummers just to be musical with your playing. You're still musicians. You can quote the melody no matter what instrument you're playing. Yep. Because yeah. melody is made up of the rhythm of the melody and the notes and the harmony, too, you know, and the meter. You know, how do you divide it up um, organizationally? And so drummers can quote melodies as well. Don't forget that. Yep. And, 
Yeah, and he kind of emulates the movement, the inner valg movement of the salt and peanuts with the different drums too. So just very musical right. from him. Um, right. And one thing about Max Roach and his solo and kind of his style is it's being driven by constant quarter notes on the bass drum. So that constant bass drum quarter note, which is not. It's not always what you'll get, but in bebop, you know, and especially with Max Roach, that's what you're going to get is a lot of that constant uh, uh, bass drum going on. Well, sometimes, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That was a moment that also screamed swing era to me or trad jazz because a, a lot of trad jazz had more bass drum pedal. Yeah. And and they would do the sort of four on the floor thing where in, in, in late swing and, and, and bebop, you know, the bass pedal was uh used at a much lower dynamic and was not playing every beat but here max roach is going off on that bass drum pedal with those quarter notes i think it's so neat it's 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 so cool so energetic and you can hear dizzy in the background yell yell yeah uh during that solo too so uh, another great moment from max roach yeah and i just think his solo kind of matches like the energetic um burn and pace that's set forth by the the rest of the band so he just does a really good job of keeping the energy through that drum solo even though he's just playing you know by himself on the drums um and then there's no repeat of the melody just kind of a tag of the first four of the a section and then what i love is just everyone in the band how uh how out hoots out salt peanuts at the end like at the end of the track that's like it's such a cool way such a fun way to end this tune and we talk about endings you know a lot on this and how you how are you thinking about how you end tunes? I think that this is just a really clever and fun way to end this tune. And this is such a fun, cool version of Salt Peanuts. Um, despite you know that one moment where they're they're not on the same page and they're not you know playing certain things together, they get lost for you know two or three bars. Um, well, really, maybe four or eight bars. But other than that, it it it's a great track to listen to. Then we get the third track on the album, All the Things You Are, with a snippet of 52nd Street theme at the end. Um, This is another classic standard that you'll hear. This one composed by Jerome Kern, the composer of musical theater. He wrote over 700 songs, including The Way You Look Tonight, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, and A Fine Romance. You know, one of these common Jewish immigrant composers that composed a lot of the great American songbook. He wrote dozens of musicals and films, and his show called Showboat is regularly revived um, on the stage. So this one from Jerome Kern. It starts with the typical intro lick that you hear for this tune. It's a standard most everyone knows. And here they're playing it at a slower tempo than one may think. A lot of cats like to play this at a burning tempo, um, which I think comes from cats like Don Bias, who played it, you know, really quick but bird typically did not play all the things you are that fast so this is another example of of sort of the easygoing tempo that you know cats like bird actually play the tune at um one problem i have with this version is dizzy's treatment of the melody he starts out you know kind of reflecting the actual melody and then he goes off improvising during the second a section before bird plays the head over the bridge um to me that's I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of that. You know, at least play a majority of the melody when you are playing the head of a tune. I know that some recordings, there's cats like Lenny Tristano who who would record tunes like All the Things You Are, and they would not play the melody at all. They would just start improvising. And so that was a particular musical decision 
um, because they wanted to develop the music and and start you know sort of the the West Coast approach. But really, if you're going to play the tune, I think you should play the tune, and an essential part of the tune is the melody. And that's proven because when Bird plays the head over the bridge, he actually sticks to the melody, which normally I would suspect the roles to be kind of reversed, where Dizzy would stick to the head and Bird would be the one to trample all over the melody and play faster lines. But really, it's the opposite of what's occurring. And you'd expect it, especially like it's kind of random, like more often you'd get the improvisation over the bridge and not over the second a section so it's just kind of it feels weird that it's like okay dizzy's doing it over the second a section and then bird over the bridge is sticking to the the melody on the bridge right so if bird's gonna stick to the melody i think it might be a good decision that you should too i don't know (laughs) um and then we get that sax solo from bird his double time feel is all over the place at the start of his solo he uses more space as he continues on. His last course is interesting as he develops after playing some really bob-heavy lines. And he messes around with just two notes developing into the bridge where Bud Powell and Charlie Mingus play busier comping. And they open up kind of what's going on beneath uh, Bird's saxophone um, as the, the chorus is finishing with faster double time lines. I want us to hear that together. This is 214 to 305. So this is a, a good chunk of Charlie Parker's solo. Yeah, and I love how he ends with those fast lines. That's that's a great thing about Bird and about, you know, Bob playing in general. Yeah, one thing that I notice here with this clip is why is Mingus's playing louder than Charlie Parker playing the solo? I it's I think it's obviously like a recording thing or maybe Mingus overdubbed the bass and it's just a little too loud here. Yeah, I think uh, I do know he did overdub his bass. Um, you think on the entire the... track here? Well, on quite a lot of it, okay. um, yeah, I mean, definitely during during a solo, but I, I think on quite a few moments of, of lines that he's walking, he did too, yeah. That stands out to me there is like, why is why is what Mingus is playing louder than what Charlie's playing? It's got to be some limitations in the recording, but that's just something I notice here is like, and it gets a little bit better towards the end of the solo. We kind of hear Bird a little bit like more clearly, but yeah, especially in the beginning, I'm like, trying to you know i want to hear what bird's playing it feels like it's getting a little bit overshadowed by the rhythm section yeah no i think that's a good point um and dizzy also showcases some nice double time ideas as well as idea development and use of quotes towards the end of his solo he's doing double time lines as there's some interesting comping also from bud powell 
And Bud Powell is kind of moving and emphasizing every beat, it seems, mm. along with Charlie Mingus on the bass. And he's doing some cool voicings too, Bud Powell is. So I want us to listen to that 20 seconds or so. This is 440 to, to 502. Yeah, I think it's so cool the way Bud Powell is, is playing on every beat, but it's not um, getting in the way of what Dizzy is doing. Yeah, it's just it, like it's moving. It, you know, you kind of feel it moving at that at that same walking pace as the bass with what he's doing and kind of the, the color of the different um, extensions in the way he's moving through the chords. Yeah, and that's not typical to do. Uh, no, I, no. I, I think that is just a great musical moment that you would not expect um to to hear and there's great moments like that on this album and uh it's just a, a lesson in itself about different ways to cop behind certain players too um and then bud powell has the next solo on the piano it seems like he proceeds his solo again with that busier comping so that's another moment where bud powell is kind of uh, you know um foreshadowing his solo he does a lot of shorter fast lines with some left hand usage on the bridge on the last A section, he references the melody a bit in the last eight bars, but all in all, he just does one chorus. Then we get a bass solo, and it starts off with nice background notes from the horns and the keys, and they lay out and come back in, in and out on the bridge in the last A section. And here, you know, it's another moment that we were getting at where Mingus obviously overdubbed himself at moments during his solo, especially the first half of the solo. You can hear that where his, uh, the end, I don't know the 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 loudness of the bass comes out in the forefront in and out from the background at moments and it's like you can hear where the original level was on the bass and then you can hear where he's overdubbing and I think that's that's what you were getting at earlier yeah and in my opinion I don't know how bad the original recording was there might have been parts of his solo that were like downright inaudible um but in my opinion, I think I might have preferred just the original recording for what it was. You know, just I, I, and I'm not to say that it wasn't just super duper hard to hear what he was playing at certain times, and that he felt like he had to to overdub what was going on to keep the like the musicality. But for me, I would have rather just. It kind of feels like it's this Frankenstein kind of thing that we're getting here at this point rather than the more organic live performance yeah i just think in general it's a bit awkward yeah. and and that's what kind of brings down that track a little bit um is is that bass solo overdubbing and and certain moments of of where you can and cannot hear the soloist as well as you mm -hmm. think you should yeah so you know that's one problem with all the things you are on this album then from that bass solo, we get the intro outro lick we're all accustomed to with all the things you are. And then out of nowhere, Mingus starts walking at this fast tempo and they go into a lick that eventually goes into what we call the 52nd Street theme, which is a sort of bop fanfare theme that Cats played. And many used it as a closer to end a set on a gig or as an interlude or transition between certain sections of tunes or between tunes. And lots of Cats have played it 
Um, I think Thelonious Monk probably originally wrote it, but I'm not quite sure. I've heard it done quite a few different ways, both at a medium, easygoing tempo and a fast tempo. Here they're doing it at a, at a pretty quick pace. And it's just a, a short snippet, and then they're out with the final banging of the piano from Bud Powell. Yeah, and I couldn't believe that this is the first time we had like done this track, All the Things You Are, since it's such a relevant standard. Like this is the first time that we've done it on the podcast. No one else has, you know, none of the other albums had have had this track. That's right. That's right. I couldn't it, even it, believe it. I was like, Max, we had to have done it. He's like, nope, this is it. I was like, wow. <laughs> it's the first time we've come across all the things you are, but it won't be the last. That's no, for yeah, sure. For sure. Yeah. So cool. And what a like what a group to get us into that that you know, that standard. So but the next uh tune on the album is entitled We. And AKA, I think it's called Allen's Alley as well as like another name for it. Um, yeah, this is a, a rhythm changes tune that was written by a, a, a drummer, Denzel, mm. Denzel DaCosta Best, who was a New York native drummer and composer. He worked with the people like Ben Webster, Illinois Jaquette, George Shearing, Nina Simone, Errol Garner. Mm. He's the drummer on the Concert by the Sea album. Oh, okay. Who, yeah, which is one of the great Errol Garner records, which we will do on the podcast. Yes. That is for certain. Yes. Um, and Denzel Bass died at uh, in 1965 at you know a younger age at 48 from complications after falling down a staircase in a New York subway station. Mm. Um, so tragic loss there. He's known for yeah, I know. Well, these like, cats. This makes me question being a jazz musician. Sometimes it's all these tragic <laughs> deaths, like. How am I going to die? Like, just. Good God. It's unfortunate. Um, but uh, he's known for his great brushwork and cool style and taking after Papa Joe Jones. And he's highly regarded by other drummers like Elvin Jones. He's kind of like a drummer's favorite drummer, um, more or less. So he's kind of underappreciated Denzel DaCosta best. So he's the one who actually wrote We. Yeah, and this track is like this, in my opinion. I mean, the the tempo's even more burning than the previous tracks. In my opinion, this is bebop, right? The burning tempo, the rhythm changes, and Bird and Dizzy. Like this is quintessential bebop. Um, the head is played together by Bird and Dizzy, and then Bird is just absolutely burning it up on his solo. There's some space, um, like we mentioned, you know, that he uses, but. Also, just lots of lines and lots of bebop lines to fill the space. And one thing that stands out to me so much on this track is Bird just makes it seem so easy and effortless in his playing. He's playing lines so quickly, so technically, and it just feels like it's so easy. And so I, I definitely, that's what's, what sticks out to me about Bird's solo here. And I just love the way that he approaches the bridge throughout his solo. He kind of... um you can hear the difference in the way he approaches like the A sections versus the bridge. And I, I definitely enjoyed that. And then we get kind of more of the same from, from Dizzy here. We're really getting to hear what bebop is all about. Um, I like what Mingus and Roach are doing kind of to drive the song forward and highlight the different sections and the changes. I think that they're, and in this album, they're just kind of the driving forces behind this album. And we get in a little bit with them in their solos, but just throughout the entire album, there's a lot to listen for as far as their, you know, their feel, their drive, and um, just kind of what they're adding to the album. And I feel like we get a little bit more of like a soul and development in, in Dizzy solo, but there's still lots of the Bob ideas and elements and lines. Um, 
And I want to I wanna take a listen on this track to Bud Powell's solo and kind of get an idea about his style and these bebop lines that we're talking about because we haven't listened to a lot of Bud Powell yet. So I want to listen to this um, s- this selection from 403 to 428 and kind of just get an idea for Bud Powell's bebop piano style here. There's some more of that kind of just the hooting and yeah, all that is absolutely killer. Yeah, his, yeah, he is he is the bird of the piano. Yep, um, that is absolutely that that was a great snippet. When I li- when I was like I was listening to the track, and I was like, we have to listen to that because we've been talking about Bud Powell, but we need to hear what we're talking about when we say the bebop style on the piano. And that, yeah, that absolutely is what like scream that to me and you can tell the other guys like it as well and one thing i noticed there listening that i don't think i listened is you can really hear um max roach and mingus push the tempo it feels like they really are pushing the tempo at a certain point it feels like it speeds up and there's just that energy that they're getting from bud powell on the piano with those lines that feels like they might be pushing the tempo a little bit for there and even increasing the the um the tempo a little bit which is fine as long as you're swinging you know you don't want to drag the tempo you always want to push it um Right, yeah, it's cool to speed up uh, a little bit, um, not to slow down. But, yeah, if they're speeding up, it's because the energy is there and they're really developing. Yeah. And then we get a drum solo for Max Roach, which uses a lot of interaction between the, the toms and the snare. And this drum solo for Max Roach, Max, it uh, it really reminds me of a good friend of ours and a longtime uh, drummer in our band named Travis Slaughter in the style that he plays. And and you know I, I I distinctly remember this solo from Max Roach when listening to it, and you're absolutely right. This is stuff Travis would do all the time, and he's an essential player in our um, in our you know group that we've been playing with since roughly 2014 on and off. Uh, Max Levy and the Hawaiian shirts, and and we would not have gone where we had been without. You know, Travis is playing and all the things his dad helped us with. And and he was an essential player in our group. And he's doing great things. He's now in Nashville, Tennessee, brewing beer and, and playing occasionally on the drum set. Um, and we're going to get him on the podcast at some time in the near future. Yeah, we definitely. Travis is a character. He's a fantastic person and he's a great drummer. And it's just, yeah, this just whenever I listen to this, it just I had flashbacks of listening to Travis and people love watching Travis play. He had really long curly hair. He still does. But and so he'd be swinging on the drum set, like playing this kind of Max Roach style and his hair would be swinging, too. So Travis is just a lot of he's a lot of fun to watch play the drums. And so we'll definitely we'll definitely have him on the podcast. He loves jazz music and he has probably more records than maybe both of us combined he's huge into he i think he dj's some like and put some jazz stuff you know spin some jazz stuff uh, when he's djing that's right yeah he's he's you know trying to do everything he can um and he has a quite a big record collection uh so both new and used 
but he's been really getting into the new reissues from Blue Note and, yeah. and things like that. So we'll we'll definitely have him on and, and we'll see what he comes up with when, when talking about some of this music. Cool. Yeah, but that's just yeah, I, I feel like I had to mention him there because the playing was just so there's so so many similarities and you can tell the influence of Max Roach and, and Travis's playing. Um, and it's yeah, it's basically a lot of Tom and Snare. Yep. Interaction between the two and lots of moving, you know, from the Tom to the Snare, the yeah. So yeah, there's, um, there's that. And then the drum solo brings us back into the melody and we go through the head, uh, once on the way out. And one thing that I've noticed I wanted to point out is kind of the end here and into the next track is we kind of mentioned it just the, some of the talking and the narrative parts of the performance have been chopped up a lot. Like it's, I, I wanted to get more of like what we got on the album uh, live at Pasadena with Louis Armstrong and, and the All-Stars where you could actually hear them talk and narrate what's going on. This one, it feels like they just chopped up the talking to make it just like this weird like introduction of the songs. And um, I feel like we got a little bit more from the the live at Pasadena than this album in that regard of kind of showing the character and listening to the the players kind of talk and what they have to say about the music you're right you get snippets of it and it seems like they were really cut short uh, maybe it was due to them wanting to account for time and and make sure they get enough of the music on the record but it would have been nice to get you know the full uh sort of picture of what dizzy was saying when introducing certain songs or when when certain players were were talking to the audience I think it's exactly for time because this album is like 44 minutes and something seconds and a 12 inch LP is uh, 22 minutes per side. So I think that's exactly why they chopped it up the way they did. Yep. So that's what they had to account. Uh, that's what they had to account for with that. Um, the next tune is called hot house, which is a contrafact based on what is this thing called love originally from Cole Porter um, this contrafact written by Tad Dameron, the jazz composer, arranger, and piano player known as the romanticist of the bop movement. And mm. that that phrase was coined by Dexter Gordon mm. when describe yeah, when describing Tad. So key player in this music. He was a composer and band leader big in the 40s and 50s, yet he suffered many health issues and passed in 1965, also at the age of 48, like Denzel Best. Um, but Tad died from cancer. And he was a big arranger in the 40s who worked with Dizzy's big band, Jimmy Lunsford, the Kansas City band, Harlan Leonard and his Rockets, which is kind of well known, and Billy Eckstein, among others. So this one from Tad Dameron, who, who you know, these cats knew. Um, and so th this was one of the contrafacts that Bob players played a lot. It's kind of a very, you know, it's a very challenging head. Lots of uh, eighth and sixteenth notes in it. It's an AABA form. That's known for its minor 2-5 chord progression that leads to a major 1 chord, not a minor 1 chord. Dizzy introduces this one on the mic, and like you said, they kind of take a chunk of it out, and it was definitely cut out, it seems like, and it seems like there's a cut right before he says hot house. Mm -hmm. And so there's something in the middle there that we unfortunately are missing. The drums bring in the melody on this one. This tune's head is really challenging, like I said earlier. Some people try to play it really super fast, 
Here they're going around 185 to 190 beats per minute. So it's a it's a good tempo, but they're not, you know, they're not going 250 or 300. Um, so it's a good tempo for this tune. And after they play that busy head, we get Bird with his solo. Great essential bop lines here. Great movement and use of quotes. I think cats sometimes lose sight over how essential quotes are to a great jazz solo, especially in a bop or swing heavy context. And here is an example of a great quote to use. This is Bird quoting the Carmen Habanera melody. This is 122 to 129. Yeah. So, and, and, and I think we're going to listen to another snippet later, um, where also, uh, we may not listen to what Dizzy does, but Dizzy also does the same quote. So it's cool to do a quote that somebody else on the gig on that tune is doing. So quotes are, I think, pretty essential to, to, to great jazz playing. And sometimes we lose sight of that as improvisers. Um, he goes on, there's more fast lines and one or two moments where Bird kind of growls some endings of his of his phrasing. And while listening to Bird in those moments, you kind of get a real sense of the fundamentals of Cannonball Adderley's playing. Mm. A lot of what Cannonball does is straight from Bird and, and those ending phrases and, and the way he treats them with the growls and, and sort of the sound that Bird is getting. Cannonball did a lot of that, too. And there's awesome constant double time playing. Here's a snippet of that that showcases Bird's impeccable feel. This is 226 to 242. Yeah, it's just constant double time there. Yeah, I like. I, I when I first heard that, I thought this is unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs> and he makes it sound so easy. Like that's the thing yeah. about Bird; it sounds so effortless. Yep, yep. He just he's just doing it, um, and it feels so good. And then we get dizzy. There's nice easy development from Dizzy solo at the start of it. I want to play a snippet of that. This is two fifty two to two fifty six. Just hear how he's using one idea and then changing that idea um, a little bit to match the next chord progression. Yeah. Right. So that's an easy go to, you know, as an improviser that, that you could do as a player. Um, and that kind of technique is, is essential to great jazz improvisation. Dizzy also quotes the Carmen Habanero, which I was saying earlier in his solo referencing what bird did. Um, and that, and that kind of moment reminds me of the, the song, anything you can do, I can do better. Yep. And you know, it's, it's, that's the great thing about jazz is, um, where, you know, cats can bounce ideas off of one, one another and they can, they can, you know, sort of play the same ideas and it's not trampling on each other. It's just musical development in the moment that makes everything better musically. Yep. He kind of takes that, that quote and he takes what bird did with it and kind of just moves it up to the next level he develops something not within just his solo but develops something from bird solo which is really clever to do not just developing within his solo, but developing within the context of the entire song 
Yeah. Anything you can do, I can do better. And then it goes back and forth, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's another quote cats will play is the melody to anything you can do. I can do better. Um, that's just a, a side point, but you know, great moment in, in this solo. And then four thirty to four thirty five, he does another song quote, great movement in, in general. I think we get from dizzy, great phrasing with a bit more space than expected. And then we get Bud Powell on the piano and there's more blues or more feel-good moments in this solo, I think, than some of the previous Bob-heavy uh, solos he was playing. And there's great cliche Bob movement in this one, but it's a little more transcribable, I would say, and it's a little more useful to the everyday pianist that wants to to learn some Bud Powell or, or get a little bit better or more familiar with this type of playing. I think... I think Bud Powell's solo on the piano on Hot House is the one you should check out if you're a pianist. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think it's got it's got a lot of good elements from and it has some of the lines in there that we want to learn, you know, that we want to take from Bud Powell and kind of dissect and figure out what he's doing, as well as having some of the more blues and swing ideas as well. Right. After that piano, we get uh, the head again during the first A sections and then Mingus solos starting on the bridge of the form. And during the bass solo, you can hear some different stuff added from the drums as well as um, some sort of interspersions or vocalization from other players. I want us to check that out together just to get a feel of, of everything that goes on during that time. This is 820 to 850. Here's foot tapping too. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. There are so many noises in that section. I'm I think it's one of those moments where you had to be there, you know? Yeah. It's like so, some of that doesn't some make sense. Some people are laughing. Like there's some of this, maybe Dizzy's doing something funny. I think that's what's going on. Yeah. Dizzy's doing something. And then Bird is, is chiming in a little bit. And then I think Max, Max Roach is playing maybe the the hi-hat, but, you know, the stand of the hi-hat or the, or the side of the snare drum or something. Um. There, there's some other metallic sounds going on there and is. then you're yeah and then you're right you hear the foot tapping i think from from mingus i'm assuming it'd be from mingus it's funny uh you can also hear mingus kind of sing what he's playing it at a certain point in it too he does like kind of a triplet idea and you can kind of hear him he sings it before he plays it which is kind of interesting he like sings it uh. and then plays it it was kind of interesting it's like back and forth with himself um and he also is foot tapping like he uh you can hear it very evidently. And he like stomps once. Did you hear that? Like where he just I stomps? Did. Yeah, that was cool. That reminds me of you when you're just getting into it and you're just <laughs> nice stomping on the on the sax. Yeah, it's part of the music. Deal yeah. with it. I think that's an awesome, just an awesome thing because we can hear a lot of what's going on. We can hear the live elements of it, and that's just one of the beautiful things about the music is hearing the that you know the live raw nature of of jazz music. Right. And then they end it uh, just with the last A section head. And there's kind of some added interplay from the horns. And it's slightly chaotic, but it's very together. And so there's this sort of element of chaotic togetherness that's a, 
that's a unique and essential aspect to some bop playing. And we get that here at the end of this track, um, which leads us into the last track of the album, uh, a very common tune um, coming from originally Dizzy Gillespie. This is A Night in Tunisia. Yeah, and so A Night in Tunisia, it's like one of the jazz standards that pretty much most people and even in popular culture would recognize. And I think one thing that makes it stand out is the ostinato bass line that it kind of starts with. Um, it's an A-A-B-A-C form, which is uh, unique. It has this kind of C section and it'll get played by both players uh, during the melody. And this is one where it seems like the track kind of cuts into when the song had already started, which I think is a little unfortunate. We talked about that with the first and who knows if it's, it might be for time that they're doing that, that they're just like, we need to like, we have too much. We need to cut it down a little bit. So they're like, Oh, well that, you know, we'll just start it like five seconds in, but that's uh, it's kind of criminal that, that happens. Um, in my opinion, but when you're like dealing with the confines of, a physical LP that cannot be manipulated. I mean, we're so fortunate to have digital music where we could, I could upload an album that's 50 hours long if I wanted to now. And so they're dealing with some of the physical and technical limitations there. So it could be why that happens. Um, but then Dizzy plays the melody over the A section. And then, like we said, Bird improvises over the B section, which is more a typical thing um, to happen. And then uh, they play the C section together, like I mentioned. And then one thing that stands out to me, if we're not, if we didn't listen to anything else on this entire album, the four bar break into bird solo is impeccable. It is absolute perfection. This is how you blow over a solo break. We have to listen to it. So let's listen to um, that four bar break into bird solo here. Yeah, that 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 four bar break is well known in jazz lore. Um, you know, how do you treat that? Because it, it's it's twice as long as as normal. You know, usually we get a two bar break at the end of a song form to the top of it again for the solo. Here it's it's four bars. So uh, it, it may not seem like you know a longer time as much of a longer time, but in the moment it really is is something you have to deal with with your phrasing with your musicality, with what you're playing. What are you going to do in those four bars? Um, you know, it, it, it really is kind of a musical challenge and puzzle as a player and as a as an improviser. And Bird is is just dynamite at, at dealing with those moments like it's nothing to deal with. And I think one thing is with a two-bar break, you can play one lick in a two-bar break, right? But in a four-bar mm. break, you can't play one lick. That's that it's not going to cut it. So you have to you have to think about what you're doing. Like Max said, that challenge is I can't just play one lick and get away with that. I've got to think of something to fill these four bars. And I think what Bird does there, that's that's top notch. That is all time. That's how you how you fill a four bar break. Yeah, it is awesome playing and and just a, a an aspect to Bird that need not be forgotten. Um, you know, we always talk about the language and, and how he's using chromaticism and, and enclosures and um, harmonic substitutions and tritone subs and, and the different harmonic aspects that, that Bird would um, implement in his playing over, over top the existing harmony that we were used to. Mm -hmm. But it's also like, how do you deal with 
filling up space in a way that is not only musically interesting as a solo instrument, but in a way that moves the song along. And it it's um, sort of musically relevant, everything he's doing. And you can't say that about every player's treatment of a, of a four-bar break like that. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I love the way you put that. And then just Bird on this entire solo. I mean, he keeps keeps up with what he was doing in that four-bar break. The solo is just so killing from Bird. Um, and one thing I love he he does is, I mean, and we've talked about some of the quotes, but he quotes the melody. And I like the way that he quotes the melody and kind of makes it into his solo. And he does it twice. So let's. I want to listen to both of them. Let's listen to the first one here at, at 155, and then we'll get into the second one. Yeah. So that's the first one. And then let's get into the second one here. Quotes are very important. <laughs> so this is the second time he quotes a little bit later on, not just like 30 seconds later on. Yeah. And just the way he takes that, the and then into the next line just develops that idea. Not he's not just playing the the melody quote to play it. He's not just like throwing it in there randomly, right? It has meaning, it has purpose, it has direction. And so that's what I love about those those melody quotes and kind of the Ab- difference between the two. Yeah, absolutely. Don't just like, you know, state the melody and then and then Play something, play something random. Play something random and irrelevant to what you just played. Build on top of it and and put on a purpose to that melodic quote. Even though, you know, just quoting something is great in and of itself, but if you can connect it to another idea or build on top of that melody in your solo, I, I think those are great moments. That's to next be level. Had. And that's yeah. That's what we get from Bird, and that's the kind of the the pushing forward of the envelope and the the music from Bird. And then Bird continues to throw some other quotes in at certain points, which is cool. Some different licks and different song quotes um, just showcases his full understanding and his full ability to play this jazz music language, which is really nice. And then there's one section in Dizzy's solo that really stands out to me, and it just showcases why he's one of the greats. It's the feel. It's the swing sensibilities, the soulful command, and the bop lines infused into all that we've we kind of have mentioned this. We've gotten into this, how Dizzy was just so great and everything that he brought to the table. This section of this solo kind of is the melting pot of it all and kind of has it all in my opinion. So let's listen to this snippet of, of Dizzy's solo here. Yeah, that that last 
sort of almost last thing from 442 to 447 is why Dizzy is nicknamed Dizzy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that you threw that in there. That's exactly it. But I think that, that that selection there just kind of gives us so much from Dizzy, right? And it's just the feel is so incredible. The swing feel is so great. And he's just throwing in some of those those bop enclosures like we mentioned and his own personal style with that kind of dizzy, dizzy kind of fluttering thing he's doing at the end there. He has total command over what he's doing and how he's expressing it. Yep. And that is this might be the best dizzy solo on the record. I agree. And I think it feels like his trumpet is just an extension of himself. And that's not something you can say for every player. But it is something you can say with Dizzy. It feels like the trumpet is just a part of a part of his body at this point. And that's the goal of of most players is we want our instrument to be an extension of our body. We want our, you know, my saxophone is a third arm of me. And that's, you know, I may not always play that way or or you know, I'll lose it at times, but that is the, you know, the the uh the goal and the desire and the ultimate um destination musically. Is, yep. is to be able to express yourself so so well in, in that commanding way that Dizzy did. Yeah, and I think Dizzy is just peak level of that here on this solo, and it really stands out to me. And then um, we get some really burning 16th note and double time lines from Bud Powell during his solo, just that typical bebop piano. Just listen to what ba- Bud Powell's doing, and you'll hear all of the bebop and kind of the Charlie Parker and influence on what he's playing and how he moved the 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 needle forward as far as piano playing at the time. Um, so we get more of the same here from, from Bud Powell. And then uh, we just go back into the first A of of the head. And then I really, really love this kind of dizzy-led outro that kind of goes into this just him and Mingus playing together section, and then they all end together. It's just it's so awesome. It's so organic. Um, it really features Dizzy really well. It's just an awesome, awesome ending. And I know Max isn't disappointed with this one. It's not a studio fade. This is this is an ending. This is how you end a tune. And Dizzy sneaks in that classic lick ending to a night in Tunisia that you'll hear. Um, you know, goes from the five and then you know uh, minor three, uh, major seven, and then you end on the nine. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'll do that one too. So. It, all in all, this is this is a great recording of a night in Tunisia. A lot to listen for um, in this track. Yeah, and just such a classic track, and we get to hear Dizzy really shine, and Charlie and Parker, Charlie Parker Bird really shine on this one as well. So, just an awesome recording and an awesome way to end this this album, in my opinion. But speaking of the end of the album, let's go ahead and wrap up with our top three and our not so hot track on the album. Um, I'll go ahead and go, go first on this one. Um, for my top three, my number one song, we just talked about it. I think it's just such an iconic standard and I love the way that they treat it and everything. It seems like on this one, everything is is so well put together and so perfect. It is a night in Tunisia. I love this track. I love this recording. Everyone is spot on on this, what they're playing. And so for that reason, it's my number one on on my top three. And then second on my top three, I have We, a.k.a. Allen's Alley. And I think this is just, it's important to put this song because this is bebop. Like I said, when we were going over the, the, the track, this is bebop. It's what it's all about. These are the bebop innovators. And this tune is just, it 
it exemplifies all that so well. So for that reason, it's my number two track. And then my number three track is Salt Peanuts. I mean, another just bebop standard as well. So I think it's important, but it's just so fun. It shows their personality and Dizzy's personality, especially so well. Just a fantastic recording. One of my favorite recordings of this tune and kind of showcases all of their personalities in the group so well together. And then my not so hot. It was so hard to pick one. I had originally kind of typed Perdido and I said, I don't even know why. And then I re-listened to Perdido another couple times and I was like, that is criminal. I'm taking that off. And so I kind of stole Max's um, like a preview here. I, I put all the things you are. And it's just, that's a great recording too, but there is this kind of the weird stuff with the overdubbing and you can't really hear birds solo that well at times. And for that reason, those aspects of the track are not so hot. Still a great track and I'm sure live it was fantastic. But so that's what I have to put for my, my not so hot on this one. It was almost impossible to pick a not so hot for this album. Um, and, and we talked about it before we were recording um, that there's just so much great playing on this record. And there's, there's, there are moments where, you know, there are mistakes, but they don't really matter because of how great the interactions are, the personality that exists on the album, the great solos, um, the great treatment of melodies. It's all in all a fantastic recording. My number one is salt peanuts just the amount of personality you get from that track, even though they had that, that one flub of a mistake, it's a lesson that mistakes are okay. There is no success without failure. And I, you said that the mistakes don't matter. I would say that they do matter, but they matter in a good way. They matter in giving us character, giving us some emotion, some feel from the album. And I, that's what jazz music's about. It's not this perfect thing that we get from modern pop music where it's all chopped up and diced up on a computer in a studio. These are people playing music and people make mistakes and it's just, and it's so perfect in my opinion. So I think they do matter, but in a, in a positive way. Right. And that's essentially what I'm trying to say Yeah, is that, you know, mistakes are going to be inevitably, you know, a part of musical performance in some way, you know, some will be bigger than others. Um, you know, you may only recognize it yourself as a player, but the audience won't, won't know it's happening or, you know, something to that effect where, where mistakes. Yeah, you're right. They, they do matter, but that is what is that's what makes this music so great is is that there are moments in these recordings where those moments are left in there but because of everything that came before it or right after or you know how great the solos are or the or the arrangement or the interactions um you know in this case the yelling that we get from dizzy gillespie <laughs> the energetic you know playing we get from from everyone it just makes up for those mistakes that may occur. And so that's why my number one is salt peanuts. Number two is we, you're right. It's quintessential Bob playing awesome, you know, uh, contra, not contrafact, but, uh, rhythm changes, um, tune and just the way they play on it is incredible. Number three, a night in Tunisia, awesome dizzy solo, um, an essential tune to know not so hot. As you said, mine is all the things you are. My only issue is with Dizzy's melody and the weird bass overdubbing that you alluded to. 
but the comping is incredible. The tempo is very, you know, it's nice and easy and it's a, a great sort of aspect to this version of all the things you are. You don't have to play all the things you are at a burn in tempo Yep. because bird did not. So are you better than bird? I mean, maybe, but you know, it's I'm, all I'm saying is you don't have to play all the things you are super fast. And this is a, um, this is proof of that. It almost feels like all the things you are kind of takes the place of a ballad on this this recording, in my opinion. It's not a ballad, but it almost feels like it takes the place of one. Yeah, I was going to say my other problem with this record is there's no ballad or also there's no bird original tune. Mm-hmm. I really would have dug, you know, I don't know, Scrapple from the Apple or, or Ornithology or something. Yeah. Um, even though bird plays his butt off and, and everything they do, you know, um, reflects Bird's involvement in the music, but they did not do a Bird tune and they did not do a ballad. But all the things you are is is almost a ballad at certain moments. Do you think that those Bird tunes are owned by Bird's record label? Because I know he couldn't put his name on them. So do you think he that could have been a a, a limitation there? Just just like spitballing. You know, yeah, you know, I don't know that. Um, you're probably right about that. There, there may be a reason why they did not do a bird tune because of copyright. That's um, what I'm. I that's just an idea. I'm not saying that that's right, but they couldn't even put his name on the album, so it'd be hard to put something that he composed, you know, on the album given that that situation. That is a great point. I did not think of that, um, but you're probably a hundred percent right. <laughs> yeah, just wow. something that came to mind there when you when you said there's no bird. I'm like, why wouldn't they? And that's a a potential reason why but cool well, let's get into our al- uh, our overall album ratings and our our thoughts um really quickly before we wrap things up here um i'll go ahead and go first and i'll let max kind of uh, close us out here um the album jazz at massey hall by this bebop supergroup, the quintet is a history piece in the universe of jazz music Five fathers of bebop come together to showcase how they all and each have innovated the music and changed jazz forever. Bird and Dizzy seem to co-lead the session and each bring their unique styles to play, as does the rhythm section. Bird showcases his masterful grasp of the music with his seemingly easy execution of complex, ever-changing, and evolving bop lines. Dizzy's swing feel and bebop capabilities is unmatched, and he truly is the father of bebop music on the trumpet. The rhythm section is no doubt one of the greatest that could be assembled. Max's Roach's high energy with Mingus's drive to match and Bud Powell's distinct bebop piano style influenced so many, nearly all pianists that were to come afterwards um, and still to this day. And uh, there are a few issues with the audio we've mentioned and the recording and some of the apparent chopped and re-spliced bits that come up during the album, which truly are a shame, um, in my opinion, and one of the only detractors from the greatness of this album. Uh, there, there are times where things seem to be, seem to come a little bit loose, like we mentioned, but they are right back together within no time. And that is the beauty of the music and hearing it within a live setting. Also getting to hear the band member interactions as well as the audience's reception is something that I truly admire and so interesting. And there are so many times where we're playing clips just to listen to their reactions. So it's something that I really, really enjoy. This album is a once in a generation occurrence of the all time greats coming together. 
and we are so lucky to have this recording to listen to as jazz music admirers. This album is worth listening to on repeat, and you just might learn a thing or two. Well said at the end. You just might learn a thing or two. (laughs) What's your overall score? Oh, yeah. My overall rating is a 9.3 out of 10. Maybe a little bit off for some of those things, the overdubbing, some of the weird things with the audio. The playing is top-notch on on this album, Um, but just a few things with the audio and things like that that, uh, you know. Yeah. 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 I, I, I would agree. I think Jazz at Massey Hall is a unique recording that effectively illustrates all that bebop has to offer. It is the only record with this bop powerhouse grouping of musicians, which includes Charlie Yardbird Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Bud Powell, Charles Mingus, and Max Roach. The quintet Jazz at Massey Hall album is essentially the last great small group purely bebop recording that took place in history. It's a definite bookmark in jazz history, equipped with the showcasing of Bird's fast lines, impeccable phrasing, and immense harmonic vocabulary that comes across in a feel-good way due to his swing, his feel, and sound. Dizzy's playing and personality is on display, too. Max Roach's energetic solos and interactions are an awesome contribution to this record. Bud Powell's style and innovations are well-witnessed here, not to mention his unique yet musical comping. Mingus's walking, solos, and efforts with this album are another essential part to its musical success. There are just a couple of moments where the group is not quite together in terms of arrangement, yet the time never drags or gets lost. This is evident on Salt Peanuts, yet there is so much character on that track as well as killer solos, one or two small moments of unpolished playing is certainly forgettable. The tempo of All the Things You Are is a nice change of pace, The melody gets lost on that one from Dizzy's treatment, yet it is still musically interesting. I also would have appreciated an original tune from Bird in the Mix, but we did go over why there may not be an inclusion of a Bird tune. They may have performed one on the concert, but it is not represented here on the album. All things considered, this record is both a treat to listen to and a historical landmark. The album's personnel should have been recorded together more than this, despite their personalities likely being an obstacle to that happening. It is regarded that the audience for this live concert recording was poorly attended due to bad timing, yet one would not know it based on the audience interactions and abundant applause included on the record. The audience itself illustrates the greatness of this music. I think you'd enjoy it too. Overall score, 9.3 out of 10. Yeah, I think that's really well said there, Max. You make a lot of really good points there. And we're right on on par with each other. And I think that's uh, our Jazz Jam score on this one is a 9.3 out of 10, which I think is a, a really fair and accurate score for this one. Definitely, if you've never listened to this recording, you have to go check it out, especially if you maybe aren't into Bird or you are or you haven't checked them out yet. This is just a great place to start with Bird and a great introduction into um, Bird and some of these guys. So definitely definitely go listen to this album um but cool before we get into um the album that we're going to be getting into i would say next week but we're going to be doing a special christmas episode which is fun um i just want to remind everyone to go check out our website which is linked in the notes below go check out our instagram the jazz jam podcast all those things email us the jazz jam podcast at gmail tell us you hate the way that I sound or do you hate something? I tell us whatever you want. Honestly, we'll or, take it. 
Or tell us or you love us. Yeah, or maybe they love you. Yeah, that's you true. Know? Maybe they love the way I sound. I don't. But um, yeah, so just whatever you want to say or recommendations, questions, anything. If you're thinking it, email it to us. We'd love to, um, and we'll we'll answer questions on the podcast if you have a question. So definitely reach out. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to, to say that there's so many ways to interact with us, and we really love um, getting those interactions from people that listen to the podcast. But cool, Max, what album are we doing for our special Christmas episode? We're going to be releasing it. This album is coming out on um, the Wednesday before Christmas, and then what we're going to release a special episode on December 23rd, which is a Friday. What album is that going to be, Max? We're going to be going over, I think, a, a kind of a fun Christmas album. This is Christmas with Jimmy McGriff. And so we're going to get into the organ. You know, we've done one episode with uh, going over Joey DeFrancesco. So we've done a little bit of organ stuff. But, you know, Dwayne, you're you're really, you know, into the organ and, and you have an, uh, a Hammond SK2. So I, I thought it'd be really fun to go over a Christmas album that features organ. There's also... Uh, tenor sax on it and they do some classic recordings of of some some you know quintessential christmas tunes um there's also songs like hip santa and christmas with mcgriff so yeah i've never heard of <laughs> i'm excited to check this out man i've never heard it before yeah and and jimmy mcgriff's you know particular tone on the organ um is is unique mm. and you know, so there's there's a lot to, to talk about, um, and it'll be you know just just a fun Christmas album to to get into that I, I think will be not not too intensive and and it'll be sort of fun. Yeah, for sure. So definitely stick with us for that bonus episode that we're going to be bringing to you, and we'll have another episode um, on our regularly scheduled Wednesdays coming out next week for you. I don't think we know what that is yet, so uh, listen to the Christmas episode to know what that's going to be. I don't think we've picked <laughs> that one yet. We're really right. well planned on this on this podcast, as you can tell. We kind of just pick, the, pick them as we go. We do have a list now, so that's good. That's something we needed. But yeah, I just want to say Thanks for listening to this episode. This has been an awesome, this has basically been just a big history lesson and we really needed to dive into Bebop more. It's been 16 episodes. We were going to do it, but we knew it was going to be an undertaking and what a place to start. Great pick by Max on this album. Um, This has been an episode of the Jazz Jam Podcast. I've been your host, Dwayne Gunnels, been joined by my co-host, Max Levy, and we will see you guys all in the next episode for our Christmas episode. <laughs>